Good evening, my friends. Thank you for being with me. I'm grateful for your time and the opportunity to study with you on this important topic. We're dealing with Reformation and Restoration. Last semester, if you're part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies, you know that we covered Catholicism. And now we are expanding our journey through uh, the history of the church, essentially, by talking about the Reformation and the Restoration Movement. Not taking it in the same uh, way that you would typically get it if you went even to one of our conservative colleges within the Restoration Movement. They would want to put a lot of dates, a lot of names, uh, a lot of times when men met to make decisions and things. I'm not even dealing with that mess. What I'm dealing with is the succinction of what takes place as far as events are concerned that formulate the departure from God's Word and the journey back to it. And as you're noticing throughout, and I'll point this out again here in just a second, but you're noticing that one of the things that I think is very important is for us to realize that the Restoration Movement did not begin after the Reformation Movement. The Restoration Movement has been with us since the beginning. Since the opening days of the church, it has been incumbent upon God's people to restore, to stay with the pattern, to stay with the inspired word, to make sure that they're following the apostles' doctrines which, by the way, is right there in Acts chapter 2. Immediately after the church's, it, church begins, we find that they continued in the teaching of the apostles' doctrines. The apostles are the ones who were inspired by God to give us the message of Jesus. They're fulfilling the words of Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, Go, make disciples, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now the apostles are passing that along. The church was not established on Peter. The church was established on Jesus Christ. It's one of the big blasphemies of Catholicism. Jesus established the church. He gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, meaning that he would be one of those who presents the opening of the door. But that doesn't mean that he was able to just say what he wanted and willy-nilly move himself through, through the Christian history. In fact, Peter himself has to be admonished by another inspired writer, Paul, as you might recall, who has to go to him face, just get up in his grill and say to him, listen, you're, you're, you're acting the hypocrite here. And so, no. Peter didn't start the church. Peter's not the first pope of the church. and All that stuff we dealt with in the previous semester. But as you move along, you begin to see, okay, now the Reformation movement, they seem to be wanting to get a little bit back towards the Bible. And so, and then, oh, and then the Restoration movement, they want to go all the way back to the Bible. And so we tend to place the Restoration movement after the Reformation movement, when in fact the Restoration movement was the at the beginning. From the moment the church began, we started the process of examining our hearts, making sure that we were repenting, getting back to what God said. Well, we'll deal with the restoration process towards the end of our semester. Right now, we are moving ourselves through the Reformation period and the five perverted doctrines of Calvin as they seem to dominate the Reformation movement. We, as you can see by that little arrow there, we're moving now into the L in the tulip, the five uh, pillars of, Catholic, of, of Calvinism. Uh, T is for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. Uh, and so in other words, it's, uh, let's see if I can do this, right? Yeah, that's the way it is, right there. No wasted blood. According to the Calvinists, Jesus didn't waste his blood on anybody who was already pre-designed to go to hell. And so their definition of predestination, which we'll get to eventually, but their definition of predestination is that God manipulated things from the eternity past. And you and I, because they deny free will, you and I are basically puppets just playing out whatever God desires. 
meaning that there is no real worship on our behalf or, or from ours, our, ourselves. Because worship demands, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, worship demands a sacrifice. We can't give a sacrifice because we own nothing. We have no free will. And so God puppeteers us to say what he wants us to say or to go to hell if we're, or to puppeteers us just to be sinful. Because all, ultimately that's the conclusion of Calvinism that you have to decide that God is responsible for our sin because we have no free will. So he makes us do everything. Uh, but again, when you come to that perverted conclusion, you also come to this conclusion that Jesus isn't going to waste his blood on those folks who were designed to go to hell in the first place. They didn't have a hope, and so why would Jesus' blood be wasted on them? Well, obviously, a lot of things play into this, but we've already seen two of them so far as we've looked at this idea of of, uh, un uh, of total depravity and unconditional election. And, and, and that is, we're already seeing how that Calvinism is coming undone. It's unraveling. It's actually imploding. It's coming down upon itself because we recognize that God is not evil, and therefore God cannot inspire evil. God is not the author of evil. God is the inspirer of free will. Now, as part of the free will, given the nature of God, we have a element of creativity within us. That's what caused Adam and Eve to select the fruit that they were told not to eat. They had been given the image of God, which is a pure image. It's an image of creativity. But they decided within their free will that they're going to abuse the free will. They chose the apple. God didn't design, and it wasn't, I don't know that it was an apple. I'm going to have people writing in all the time. They chose the fruit. Okay, they chose the fruit. They're the ones who chose that fruit. God didn't predestine that Adam was going to to, uh, to, to, to do those things in the sense that he was pre-manipulated into doing that. Now, again, you're going to have to eventually pedal forward in the series and you'll find my understanding of predestination. But when you understand what predestination entails according to what the scripture defines, not Calvin, God predestines according to what he foreknows. So God looks into the future. He recognizes the decisions that I'm going to make. Well, let's go with Adam because that's the one we're dealing with. He, re he realizes the decisions that Adam is going to make, and so he predestines there will be a destination of Adam that's pre-designed by God because God knew what Adam was going to do in his free will. Tonight, as we look at this idea of L, uh, the idea of limited atonement and this no-wasted blood, I think we're going to see what I think is one of the biggest blasphemies of Calvinism. And uh, this idea that the blood of Jesus does not cover all, in spite of the fact of the overwhelming amount of material you're going to see this evening that suggests that the harmony of Scripture certainly points to the direction that Jesus died for everyone. In fact, the last one of the last passages you're going to see actually just states it, that he presented himself to be the propitiation both for those who would be, as the Calvinists would say, elect, and the rest of the world. He is a propitiation for everyone. But the one thing I want you to notice as we move through this this evening is the amount of material that offsets their damnable conclusion. The number of passages that they have got to work their way through, they've got to, dis they've got to somehow dismiss, they've got to eliminate the, the context, they've got to cherry pick it out, they've got to do what they can to make sure that these passages don't stand up. They've got to work overtime on this one. And you're going to see the number of passages that I present. So I'm going to move pretty fast this evening. But you'll, I think you'll appreciate the sheer volume of material. And in so doing, I hope that you'll screenshot it as you go through or that you'll 
watch it repeatedly uh, as we deal with some of these passages. Let God speak. Forget Sunday Challenge. Forget Calvin. Watch what God's going to say on the screen. Um, here are the five questions that I have often uh, told you that I present at the beginning. So screenshot that. That'll help being kind of, help you kind of guide you through what I'm about to say. And uh, if you're studying on your own, you can uh, use this as kind of some study markers. Or if you're part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies, this will be on your final test. Got it? Okay, here we go. Now, as I've been doing each time, I've been trying to give another passage. And I think next time I'll have at least one more that I'll share with you out of the book of Revelation, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, I've been trying to give another passage to, to show you that even Scripture tells us we are called to restore, not reform, restore. And so that's the question at the top there. How do we know that we're even expected to restore New Testament Christianity? Well, Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus leaves, he says to his folks, hey, here's your assignment. I want you to go make disciples of and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So it was the assignment of the original 12 that they were to make sure that they taught what Jesus taught. Okay. And then you've seen numerous passages we've covered in this, this opening segment each time. But now you come to Colossians chapter 4 and you find another one. Notice what happens to the writings of Paul, one of the inspired individuals that gives us much of our New Testament, a, an apostle born out of due season, as Paul would say. He comes to it late, if you will, but no less spent time with Jesus. Colossians chapter 4, Paul gives these instructions about the inspired message, the inspired writings that are, are being presented. And when this letter has been read among you, he says to the church at Colossae, have it read in the church at, of the Laodiceans. So make sure that once you guys get done reading, you pass it along to the church at Laodicea. But then notice he goes on to say, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so, in other words, it's kind of almost one of those, you know, uh, where you you know how a library has those share things? What are these things called where you share books and you can send it from one library to another, you know, and that kind of a thing? Well, that's basically what's happening here in the, in the early uh, days of the church. Paul is writing a letter, an inspired letter. He writes it to the church at Colossae, and then he says, now make sure that you pass that along. Now, what does that have to do with our topic here? Well, a lot. Because notice that they are responsible for restoring, getting back to, Make sure that it's not just Colossae that obeys this letter, but the church at Laodicea obeys it as well. You see the restoration process there? That they're to go back to the original words of, in this case, Paul, because he was inspired by God. It's still God who's presenting the message, and therefore God who is calling us back to restoration, not reformation. Thus you have here in this little thing, you got all these white lines there that are referred back to the original church here. That's the restoration movement. That's why I say from the beginning we've had the restoration movement. But tonight we're dealing with this idea of reformation that's split off from Catholicism. They don't like for me to say it this way, but the reformation movement is really the child of Catholicism. What happened is the child got so disgusted by the parent that they decided to break off and break away. Okay, uh, Luther, Luther was a Catholic. Whether they want to claim him or not, he was a Catholic, trained by the Catholics. So you see the progression here that you got apostasy begins almost immediately. And I, by the way, I would identify that apostasy as asceticism, which shows itself most primarily in the false damnable doctrine of original sin, which we, we've already covered in, in, earlier in this series. So that's the apostasy, which eventually develops into, they gave it a name, Catholicism, 
and eventually Reformation movement comes along. But again, remember, the Reformers weren't really looking to go back to the original church pattern. They were just looking to make the present religious system more palatable to them. That's all they really cared about. But again, my point is, Colossians 4 and 16 clearly tells us that, yes, we are responsible. They were responsible all the way back in the beginning. They were responsible for restoring. Go back. Take the letters. Read them. Do it. Pass it on. Because we want to restore. Keep the purity of the original church. Limited atonement, as I've already mentioned. There's a quote from John Calvin. Read it on your own. I'm not really interested in promoting his material, but I, I did want you to see that uh, there is a, I have some credibility in what I'm saying about it because not only did I write that little book, where I can use my right hand here, everything's backwards. I, not only did I write that little book, which I uh, think is worth reading, but also in it I quote from John Calvin and I give you the references in there, etc., etc. But that's what John Calvin says with regards to this idea of limited atonement that Jesus didn't die for everyone. However, first passage right out the gate that everyone likes to present to the Calvinists, and rightly so, is the most quoted passage in all of the Bible. Now, we don't generally quote verse 17, which is very significant, okay? But the, for God so loved the world part, we always get verse 16, okay? And it's a powerful passage to offset the damnable doctrine of limited atonement, to... to uh, help us to come up against and to, to re, refuse the, the imp, imp, implications of Jesus not having the power to save everyone or didn't want to save everyone, doesn't love everybody, etc. John 3.16, you're going to notice that in 3.16 and 17, the word world is mentioned three times. Three times. For God so loved the world. Now they're going to say what that actually means, Sonny, is that God loved the world of the elect. So, Anyone who's elected, God loved those folks. Now, as you can, again, as I said, as you see the preponderance of evidence, the number of passages that indicate this general term of world, not just a specific little group, but world, when you recognize how much material I'm about to share with you, you begin to see how nonsensical their conclusions are. They're just, they're just simply ignoring, resisting, refusing to see the harmony of Scripture. They're cherry-picking. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Again, three times the word world, the general description of world is referenced here. And then when you tie in verse 17, you find exactly why John 3.16 was even mentioned. Because, as if God was, well, he, he knew, this is another predestination moment of God, God knew exactly how we would misuse this passage, Calvinists that is, would misuse this passage, and so he gives us verse 17 as well. God says, I did not send my son into the world to condemn it, I sent my son into the world to save it. The world. Now again, they're going to say, no, that's just the world of the elect. Really? Stay with me. 2 Peter 3 and 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now again, they'll make their, their, their 
Typical response, no, Sonny. The all and the any is talking about all the elect, any of the elect. But that's very problematic for the Calvinist, and I'll tell you why. Notice right here. If this is written only to the elect, then you have to also draw this conclusion. Unconditional election and once saved, always saved is a farce. Because, notice what he says. If he's writing only to the elect, then he is saying he doesn't want any to perish. Why would he say that unless there's a potential of them perishing? But he wants all to reach repentance. Why would he say that? If the elect are able to walk away, then they can repent. But if they're not able to walk away, once saved, always saved, there's no need for repentance because they're not able to walk away in the first place. And so this, this particular passage is rather troublesome for the Calvinists because if you're going to decide that he's just talking about this little group of elect, then you got to say that the unconditional election and the once saved, always saved, that's out the window. And so this passage causes them to actually come in conflict with their own doctrine. I'm suggesting to you, this is passage number two, however, that isn't talking about a just a small group of elect, but rather God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But you say we only had two passages so far, Sonny. Let me give you another. In Matthew 24 and then Matthew 28, two very similar concepts are presented here by Jesus himself. And this is the gospel, excuse me, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, when he says it's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world, did Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and did they only go to the elect? Or did they go to the entire world? And he's going on to say, as a testimony to all nations. That's interesting, that the word nations, another general term that is attached to this idea of the gospel, gospel presentation. It's not now just the world, but it's also all nations. Then you go to Matthew 28, 19, he uses that word all nations, those words all nations again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations nations. The point is we're, we're just, we're building a pattern. And it, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of the Calvinists constantly, constantly saying, oh no, 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 Sonny, you don't understand. That passage is just all nations of the elect. That passage is just the whole world of the elect. You see, I'm getting a little tired of them constantly having to reshape the passage to make it fit their pre-conclusion. Why don't we just let the passage say what the passage says? I'd also ask you this question out here in yellow. Why tell everyone? Why tell everybody? If only a few have the potential of being blessed. You ever think about that? What is the purpose of going into all the world and preaching the gospel to everybody, every creature, as the King James says? If only a few are actually given the potential of receiving it. Now, it's true only a few will actually act upon it. There, Only a few will receive it. We know that. Few there be that find it. I get that. But does that mean that it wasn't offered to everyone? 
It seems like a rather cruel doctrine to me, or a rather cruel gospel to me, to say, go and tell everybody, but the majority of them, you can say, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. You can't go, even though I told you so. There's some good news, but you don't even have the potential of getting a hold of it. Are you sure God operates that way? I don't know. I've lost count of the number of passages we've seen so far, but there are several more. Here's Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world. There's that phrase again, proclaim the gospel. The whole creation. Creation. Whole creation. Were there people created that are beyond the ones that the Calvinists would claim are elect? And yet it says here that we're supposed to go to all the world, whole creation. Colossians 1.23, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Question, why use such broad terms to describe such a limited group? We've had world, we've had all nations, all the world, and now we've got all creation. And I might have missed one there. Why Why was he using such broad terms? And again, the Calvinists are, hold it, Sonny, Sonny. He's not saying the whole world is just the whole world of elect. All the created elect. Are you getting tired of that excuse as much as I am? But there's more. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, all people, to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Notice that God himself, the Holy Spirit himself, validates the idea that Jesus gave himself for all. All people. He didn't just give himself for the though those who the Calvinists will claim are the elect. He gave himself for all people. And then you, you expand that by Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, and it says basically the same thing, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Yeah, I've lost count again, but here's some more. How about 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2? This is a really important one. In fact, I think I, I kind of alluded to this in the introduction. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will... Let me just read that and then I'll come back and explain. So that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, go back to the first underlined phrase there. My little children. Who is John addressing this letter to? Well, we can know for sure because you can flip to the last chapter, chapter 5 and verse 13, which you see right there, and you can see the words. John himself tells us who he's writing to. I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. So even if you go with the definition that the Calvinists put on election, which I don't, but even if you go with that, the Calvinists would have to agree that first John is written to the elect. So when he says, my child, my little children, and then he goes on to talk about this whole idea of various things with regards to propitiation, you get down to verse 2 and you notice that he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's the elect, according to the Calvinists. Okay, that, that would be the, uh, the small group of elect that they, that they want to eliminate, that they want to limit Jesus' blood to. But notice what it says actually here. For he is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only. 
Anything you want to do with 1 John chapter 2, you've got to make sure that you understand that it was written to Christians, those who the Calvinists would say is this little tiny group of elect. And then number two, you've got to understand that John specifically addressed those who are not part of that little group that Calvinists want to say is the, 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 the limited area where Jesus' blood applied. Not for ours only. This propitiation does not just work for us. It's not just for those that John's writing to who are the believers. It also works for the whole world. If they will accept it. And again, that's a problem for the Calvinists because the Calvinists don't believe in free will. Therefore, they don't believe that they can accept. Oh, they'll use terminology like that. at the end. Of, but at the end of the day, if you press them, they will say that it has to be God who initiated that. God is the one who pushes us in. That's why we're going to get down here to unconditional, well, we've had unconditional election, but a limited atonement, and what's in there? T-L-L, irresistible. That irresistible grace. So grace is going to come upon you in an irresistible manner. See the extreme nature of Calvinism? But it's irresistible grace. I mean, you have no choice in it. Remember, you're a puppet. And God says, you are going to be puppeteered into being one of the elect. Yo, no, that guy at the back there? No, no. You're puppeteered in being rejected. You get to go to hell. And so you see what Calvinism does with passages such as 1 John chapter 2. They, they, they shrink back from it. Because clearly, John is addressing two groups. Clearly. He's addressing one group that are believers, according to 1 John 5 and 13. That's who he's writing to. But in verse 2, he also mentions the other group. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. He also is a propitiation for the whole world. Limited atonement is a perverse damnable, blasphemous doctrine invented in the mind of Calvin, promoted by many, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and many others within Christendom. And you and I are having to unravel that, try to save our children from that, because especially the Baptist church has all kinds of recreational, entertainment kind of things that, that draw our young minds over there. And then in the process... They feed them this dark, damnable doctrine of limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everyone. It's time for us to stand up. It's time for us to make a, a bold declaration that we will not allow our children any longer to be pushed off, pulled off into that world of darkness. Notice the differentiation between the two groups. You got those who are believers, 1 John 5 and 13, or my little children as he identifies them earlier on in this passage. And you got those who aren't. Two different groups. And yet I want you also back to notice that the declaration is that Christ is the propitiation for both groups. Limited atonement is a damnable blasphemy. Don't allow your child, don't you allow yourself to be drawn into the devil's lair with regards to that subject matter. But, I know I've put up a lot, but I want to give you at least one more. Matthew 5 and verse 45 is not one you would probably suspect would have an application here, but I think once I explain it to you, you'll see. Notice that it says, For he, that is God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
there's a statement here that is being is recorded by Matthew that I think tells us about the nature of God, and that is that God blesses through the rain and the sun, whether you are part of that little group that Calvinists like to define as the elect or not, or you're not part of that group. It, you're going to get sun and rain just like the rest of us. But my question is here in yellow, why would God have the sun rise on the evil and on the good and send the rain on the just and on the unjust if he doesn't even want them to be saved? And isn't that topic, the sun, the rain, isn't that such a lesser topic as far as importance than one's salvation? Is God just inefficient? Is he wasteful with his blessings? Or is that God has designed this realm to present blessings that would draw you to him? Romans chapter 1. Even in the creation of the world, we see the evidence of God so that we are without excuse, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Everyone is without excuse. Because even if you don't have a Bible, you got a tree, or you got the grass, or you can watch the animals. God shouts, I am here. And he shouts that message to everyone on the planet. Now, some are more advantaged than others. I get that. And by the way, that's what I believe the word elect actually means. I'm certainly more advantaged than some of you who are watching. I've got good friends who are watching from Kenya and Uganda and India. Who, who struggle. One of my very dear friends who's in Uganda who just recently got his little daughter out of the hospital because she was struggling with, uh, with, with malaria. And I, I love this guy with all my heart. He's a hard-working gospel preaching, I'm a preacher, and I'm so very, very thankful. But you know, in a lot of ways, to my buddy, I've been elected in a lot of ways that you have not been. I'm advantaged. That's why I worked really hard today to make sure that I could get some money to pass along to my friend in Uganda to help take care of his hospital bills. Because I'm elected. I'm advantaged by God. And when there is great advantage, there is great responsibility. And I take that very personally, that I have a responsibility of helping people such as my buddy over there in Uganda. But knowing that God, in general, elects everyone, even my buddy in Uganda gets the sun. Even my buddy in Uganda or Kenya or India gets the rain. We all are elected to one degree or another. And the same thing is true with regards to atonement, salvation, propitiation, the blood of Jesus. Hear me, my friends, as I end this. The blood of Jesus is more than powerful enough to take care of everyone. If they will simply come to him, the blood will cover their sin. I'm not saying that everyone will. In fact, I'm saying the words, same words of Jesus that the majority will not. Few there be that find it. But that doesn't mean they aren't invited. It doesn't mean that it's not there for them to take advantage of if they simply would. Limited atonement is a damnable blasphemy. Don't allow yourself or your children to be drawn away into the blasphemies of Calvinism. There are the five questions I attempted to answer during our time together. And I think we covered most of that. Appreciate you so very, very much for being with me. Please pray for my ministry. A lot of what we say is not very popular. A lot of hate mail comes our direction. A lot of lost support because we're willing to speak the blunt truth. But uh, because of people like you, we keep going. 
and because of opportunities to serve in various ways that some of you are aware of are salvage for the savior you've heard of that where we're actually collecting scrap metal and we take it to the salvage yard and we turn it in uh, and they give us some money and we use that for missions work we're able to do that because i'm advantaged i'm elected to a greater degree at least in this area than some of my friends and so it's my responsibility to do that and i'm thankful to be able to support the restoration school of biblical studies and i appreciate you for making sacrifices to keep us alive so we can continue to do this kind of thing well there you go you got five questions I'm going to sign off. Sonny Child saying be there, Matthew 16, 26.